0: Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. This week, we have another extra inning for The Ballpark for you. Today, I'm in conversation with Marisa Lago, the director of the New York City Department of City Planning and chair of the City Planning Commission. Alongside LSE Cities and LSE School of Public Policy, we hosted Marisa Lago on the 5th of November 2019 for the event Planning New York. Ahead of the event, I spoke with Marisa Lago about what it's like to work across three New York mayoral administrations, the big planning issues facing the city, and how planning can help to solve inequality in big cities. For our listeners who may not be aware, could you briefly sort of lay out the relationship between New York State and New York City in terms of who controls what?
1: At its most basic level, New York State controls taxes, whether they be income, business, or real property taxes. We can't raise or lower taxes in the city on our own. The state also controls transportation. I would guess that many folks would not be aware that New York City's vaunted subway system and bus lines are actually controlled by the state. Now, on the other hand, what the city government itself controls is our schools, our police department and our first responders, our parks, our streets, and what's especially important for me, our land use controls. Um, What I've found is that what a city controls, it generally does pretty well Uh, for example affordable housing which is mayor de blasio's signature program but also vision zero to reduce traffic fatalities and the institution of free pre-k for all four-year-olds which is now being extended to three-year-olds on the other hand we'll turn to transportation we look at london's crossrail And we're green with envy. Um, Recently, New York City opened, or I should say New York State, which controls the subways, opened three stops on the 2nd Avenue subway, a two-mile stretch of track, and reported to be the world's most expensive per kilometer. That pales in comparison to Crossrail, and planning, or the first discussion of the 2nd Avenue subway, started in 1920. (laughs)
0: Wow. So it's, it's been a long time coming compared to our crossrail, which is, I think, several decades, but a long time coming. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you've you worked for three different mayors of New York, uh, Koch, Dinkins, and now Mayor Bill de Blasio. Could you briefly talk about, the, about their approaches to planning and running New York City?
1: Look, their style is a factor. They are very, very different people. But I would emphasize that each of these three mayors has served in vastly different times and they were the mayor for their times. If you look at what Mayor Koch's big challenge was, the city was close to bankrupt. We were desperate for any construction and we were losing, we were hemorrhaging jobs and residents to the New Jersey and Long Island suburbs. Mayor Dinkins governed in a very, very different time. It was a time of transition. There were racial tensions. You may recall that following the death of Rodney King, that there were riots in L.A. Mayor Dinkins kept the peace in New York, a significant accomplishment. Um, It was also the time of the crack epidemic. But I think that folks too frequently overlook one of Mayor Dinkins' key legacies, which is that he was responsible for the construction of the stadiums in the city-owned park that are used each each year for the US Tennis Open, the the US Open. It's hard to overstate the impact of these facilities, the tourist draw that they are for the two weeks, the fact that during those two weeks, it is a free advertising commercial for New York City, and the fact that for the balance of the year, these facilities are available to school children, to public school children. Mayor de Blasio is actually harnessing the very strong and vibrant economy that we have in New York to address inequality. Um, His goal is to make New York the fairest large city in the US. Um, One other change, the reality of climate change means that Mayor de Blasio is addressing climate change, issues of resiliency and sustainability in a way that didn't need to be on the radar screen of Mayors Koch and Dinkins. I would also make actually a more general point about city administrations, the life of a city. Every mayor during his term, and we've only had male mayors in New York, does the heavy political lifting that's needed to build consensus to get major projects done. But it's typically A future mayor who reaps the benefits. These large transformative projects exist across administrations. If you think back to Mayor Koch, he is the one who kicked off the cleanup of 42nd Street. During his term, the deuce was nothing but crime prostitution. Rudy Giuliani was mayor when the transformation of 42nd Street occurred, when the Lion King, when Disney, appeared on 42nd Street. And mayors since then continue to reap the benefit of what, for Mayor Koch, was nothing but a headache. The U.S. Tennis Open that I mentioned, that is something that continues to benefit mayors to this day. If we look at the Bloomberg administration, they had the vision to see that these rail yards on the west side of Manhattan could be decked over, and it was Mayor de Blasio who had the pleasure of being there at the opening of this massive new mixed-use neighborhood mayor de blasio he had the foresight to develop and then the political consensus to deliver the nation's most progressive mandatory inclusionary housing program requiring permanent affordability as a percentage of housing developments this is something that will benefit future mayors And so to a certain extent, mayors are paying it forward. And I think that's important for a vibrant city.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. So what are some of the competing forces and agendas that um, planners like yourself need to manage when thinking about New York City's future?
1: Well, look, for all that New York City appears to the outside world, perhaps as a monolith, we are a city of neighborhoods, many, many neighborhoods, each of which is unique, dynamic and changing, what I've found is that we as human beings tend to be tremendously conservative when it comes to our homes. We don't like change. Um, And it's ironic that many of those who are opposed to new development in New York City today were the gentrifiers of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's been true throughout New York's history. But we can't stop time. When the Dutch first came to New York, they upended a thriving Native American Indian colony, and then along came the British, and they changed the built context from the beautiful Dutch buildings that had been there. A great example of the challenges that we face is a neighborhood known as El Barrio, or Spanish Harlem. In my youth, it was home to New York City's large Puerto Rican community. It was buzzing with Latin music, with families, with Puerto Rican food, And today, El Barrio is still largely Hispanic, but there is an increasing Asian population, a non-Hispanic white population. And if we look backwards, Spanish Harlem had been full of Germans and Scandinavians. If you had gone there in 1917, it would have been defined by the Eastern European Jews in the late 1800s. Italians were the dominant ethnicity. Um, We're the city that never sleeps, but we're also the city that never stands still. So the challenge is you have to navigate constituencies. We have 51 city council members, we have the mayor, we have vocal advocates, be they housers or business groups, open space advocates, transportation, alternate transportation gurus. All of this is actually healthy for a dynamic city to have this play of forces. But the challenge for city planning is for the Department of City Planning is we have to balance hyper-local neighborhood concerns with important citywide needs. Everyone wants their garbage picked up and handled. No one wants the Department of Sanitation's garage in their neighborhood. And this is even true when it comes to housing. Recently, a citywide elected official speaking to a business group asked three simple questions. How many of you in the room would agree that affordable housing is a crisis in our city? Practically every hand went up. His next question was, would you agree that as part of the solution, we have to build more affordable housing? Just about every hand went up. And the next one was, which of you would want a high rise affordable housing tower next to your room? And there were only a few brave souls of us who raised
0: our hand. Thank you so much. How important or not would you say is, the, is federal government policy in running a city as big as and important as New York? It would be
1: really easy to say there's no role because we don't have a federal ministry devoted to planning. But the reality is that the federal government does play a big role. Um, sadly, it is, at present, a largely negative role. Um, I would focus on immigration policy. It has a huge impact on New York City. It influences who moves to New York City and the quality of life for immigrants in our city. Um, our city is 37% foreign-born, and 60% of us have at least one parent who wasn't born in the United States. The next example, I would say, of a negative intervention by the federal government is our decennial census. We continue to have a census in the U.S. It's enshrined in our Constitution, oh, and the census is important. It affects both our political representation in the House of Representatives, but also the allocation of billions of dollars of federal aid, aid that is used for things as diverse as school lunch programs for underprivileged kids to dollars for repairing highways and bridges. Unfortunately, we are trying to counter the risk of under-participation in the 2020 census because of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that is coming out of Washington. One in seven New Yorkers lives in a home with a non-citizen. And so because of this concern about the role of the federal, or the language of the federal government, for the first time ever, the city is putting millions of dollars towards a get out the vote um, type of initiative of insisting that we be counted. There is another negative, unfortunately, is the Trump administration's refusal to fund the Gateway Project. We have one crumbling rail tunnel that's key to all of the commerce, all of the rail traffic between Washington, D.C. and Boston, which is a very significant part of 10% of U.S. GDP. It depends upon this tunnel. I, I don't, it's not my nature to be only, it's not my nature to be pessimistic. I'm a diehard optimist. And so I actually can give one very positive example. If we think about the Great Recession, The bailout of the banks, which was bipartisan, it was started by President Bush and continued by President Obama, greatly benefited New York because of that bold action. In Washington, we experienced
0: in New York a much much faster recovery than most of the rest of the U.S. So what are the big planning issues facing New York City over the next 10 to 20 years? I'm glad that you asked about that time frame. Mm -hmm. So much of
1: what city government does is the immediate, but as a planning department, we deal with the immediate, but also with planning 10, 20, 50 years out into um, the future. And as you can imagine, in a city as complex and diverse and quickly changing as New York, we face quite a number of issues. Um, First and foremost is resiliency. New York City has 520 miles of coastline, and that's more coastline than any other three U.S. cities. And so we believe that we're the U.S. city that is most vulnerable to coastal flooding. So we absolutely have to change the way we build our buildings, and not just our buildings, but our infrastructure, our power grids, our subways. The second is very different, the changing nature of work. Our city was built with the assumption of 9 to 5 office work and then traditional manufacturing jobs which have sharply contrasted obviously since the 1960s. And so how will a 24/7 economy, a very bimodal, a multimodal economy and an economy that increasingly has non-traditional ways of working transform our buildings, transform our public spaces, transform the type of public transportation that we need. Um, One very tangible physical example is the fact that many of our sidewalks are turning into mini warehouses for the last mile delivery. A delivery truck comes up, dumps a bunch of packages, and then a whole bunch of folks sort them on the sidewalk and deliver them to the buildings in the neighborhood. We can even go as far out as thinking about how do autonomous vehicles how does autonomous transportation shape our city Um, we're seeing a proliferation of for hire vehicles which are leading to congestion even as they make it easier to get around or to be able to hail a way to get around the city autonomous vehicles they're going to be much harder to deploy in a dense urban fabric than in our suburbs Will the ability to get into your autonomous vehicle and sleep for the two hours that it takes you to get to the center city lead to a re-suburbanization? We need to plan for that. And drones. Traditionally, planners have thought about the public realm being the sidewalk level. Do we now need to plan vertically as drones make delivery to 14th story apartments? <laughs> um, an aging population, and this is a challenge that we share with London. Currently, London's population of 65 plus is under 12%, whereas it's at 15% in New York City, but London's is going to accelerate over the next 10 years or so. By 2040, we anticipate that almost 16% of New York's population will be 65 or older. That sounds like a lot to us, but at the U.S. level, it'll be almost 22 So how do we plan for this aging population? Um, The challenge of housing and especially affordable housing, it's not going to go away. And so I think we need a fundamental rethink of how we approach the challenge of housing our growing cities. And what I would overlay on top of all of these issues is the issue of equity. We have to approach it through the lens of addressing the inequality that still bedevils
0: our cities, even as the top-line statistics look quite rosy. Thank you so much. That's actually a lovely segue into my next question is, how can planning actually help to solve inequality in big cities like New York?
1: Well, first, I have to start out by saying that fighting inequality takes a whole-of-government, a whole-of-society approach. As important as I think planning is, it is but one one element. But I can give you a few examples of what we've done in New York City. The first is mandatory inclusionary housing, MIH. This is a powerful zoning tool adopted under Mayor de Blasio's watch and with his leadership. It requires that any property that is granted the approval to produce significantly more housing than had been allowed before has to set aside a minimum of 20% of the housing as permanent affordability. In the past, many of our housing programs had temporal affordabilities, and so we're seeing programs from the 1970s with a 50-year time frame beginning to roll off. I can give a real-world example of how MIH works in a high-income neighborhood. There is a largely vacant full block just south of Hudson Yards. Now, Hudson Yards on Manhattan's west side is in a broader neighborhood where the median household income is about 80,000 pounds. That's nearly 70% higher than the citywide median income. In 2012, the city upzoned land that was zoned for manufacturing, manufacturing that had long since left, to allow the construction of housing. 1,200 units of housing, 300 of which have to be permanently affordable and there was no discretionary government subsidy. This was the private market cross-financing the production of affordable housing. There's another way that planning helps address inequality, and this is in lower-income neighborhoods where one can't harness the market forces because the housing that gets constructed generally requires subsidy. There, we use place-based investments. The de Blasio administration has successfully completed six comprehensive neighborhood plans. Each plan follows years of engagement with local stakeholders, community residents, hospitals, and other major institutions, elected officials, to find out what the community's vision for itself is. And after these years of planning, which involves not just the Department of City Planning, but departments of transportation, of health, of parks, the library systems, We have proposed rezonings that will generate 22,000 new homes, and again, 6,500 of them permanently affordable. But as important as the new housing is the fact that as part of the rezoning, there are significant investments into these communities, communities that had seen decades of disinvestment. In these six neighborhoods, the city is investing over £775 billion. And this investment is tangible. You're seeing parks that had grown into a state of disrepair refurbished. You're seeing new schools. You're seeing improved sidewalks. One that is especially of interest to me, we are seeing in one of the neighborhoods an elevator providing access to a subway line that is three stories up in the air. These are victories for equity.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. What would you say are some of the similar challenges that face London and New York City and what are the big different challenges as well?
1: Okay. I can't pretend to be a London expert, although I've been here more times than I could ever count. Um, But there there are some objective similarities. We are about the same number of people. New York City is 8.5 million. London is 8.9 million. But New York City has about half the area of the City of London, so we're more crowded. Um, We are both outsized cities within our nations. If you were to look at New York City, it's comprised of five boroughs. Four of the five boroughs would be top ten U.S. cities. And were you to list, if each borough were a separate city, the largest cities in the U.S. would be New York, L.A., Chicago, and Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is estimated to overtake Chicago next year. But what's interesting is that London is far more significant in terms of population within the UK than New York. Fewer than 6% of the US population lives in New York City, and the number, the percentage is more than double for for London. Um, We're both cities of immigrants. Immigration defines us, it's our, our differentiator, it's our point of pride. London voted against Brexit, and like New York City, we are just pro-immigrant locales surrounded by a nation that's headed down a different path. On differences, we're a coastal city, as I mentioned, 520 miles of waterfront. London has its resiliency challenges, be it coping with changing weather or with high temperatures. But we also have to contend with sea level rise in New York. One can't overestimate the significance of Superstorm Sandy on the psyche of New York. We lost 43 lives, the property damage was measured in the billions, and the flooding occurred in areas that the federal flood maps had not identified as at risk. I think another key difference that is relevant to what I do day in and day out is our approach to land use. Um, In London, it is very high-level planning and then discretionary approvals on a site-by-site basis. It could not be more different in New York where we have planning, but the rules of the road are codified in a 1,500-plus page zoning resolution. If you follow the rules of this complex zoning resolution, you don't have to come to the Department of City Planning for any discretionary approval. Over 90% of private development in New York City never comes to the Department of City Planning. If we were to follow London's approach, we'd have to balloon our bureaucracy, and I think that we would be far less nimble. We wouldn't be able to pivot as quickly as the city and its built form continues to, um,
0: to evolve. Thank you so much. I, I didn't know that, and I suspect most people... <laughs> Listening to this wouldn't wouldn't either. That's really really interesting. So, just a, the final question: Given that you are at the uh, the LSC this week, giving giving a talk, so with, with that in mind, how can academics and other experts better feed into the planning process in New York, and indeed making New York a, a better city in general?
1: At city planning, we absolutely love academics because they push the boundaries of what's conceivable. We especially love academics who are also willing to get real and practical. Um, What you may not know is the Department of City Planning is a major research engine. We just released a major report on the changing nature of retail, the vacancies on our high streets. It has sparked such a useful conversation in the public, but also with academia. We undertook that research because we saw that there was a gap And also that there was a fiction cropping up that the only reason for vacancies were greedy landlords who were holding out for higher rent. So we went out and did this research of 24 local neighborhood-facing retail strips. We now hope that academics are going to pick it up and and take it further. Uh, One of our key findings was that Soho had the same high vacancy rate as Brownsville. Now, Soho, most of your listeners would know, is a very high-income destination, boutique, retail shopping area. Brownsville is a very economically disinvested neighborhood in Brooklyn. They both had the same very high vacancy rate, but the reasons could not have been more different. In Brownsville, no easy access to transportation, years of disinvestment, versus in Soho, possibly landlords holding out. So we realized that a one-size-fits-all solution wasn't appropriate. We are extremely fortunate to have important expert research organizations in New York. One example is NYU's Furman Center for Real Estate and Housing. And our current D- deputy mayor for Housing and Economic Development, who is my boss, Vicki Bean, had run the Furman Center. We really benefit from the fact that such a well-respected academic, joined government. And if I could end this question with a pitch to more academics to think about taking their incredible intellectual capital and creativity and coming inside government and helping us from within.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to, to end. Thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Marisa Lago is the director of the New York City Department of City Planning and chair of the City Planning Commission. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Check out the LSE Public Lectures and Events podcast feed, the recording of Marisa Lago's recent event, Planning New York. Thanks to Marisa Lago for joining me in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman. The Ballpark podcast is supported by the Phelan family. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter.lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at at LSE underscore US and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Mechanics. Thanks for listening.